Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the latest dodge by the conspiracy monger Alex Jones of InfoWars, whose claims that the Sandy Hook massacre of kindergarten children was a hoax were compounded by Jones's followers who harassed the grieving parents to the point some had to go into hiding, adding cruel insult to the parents' devastating injury. Joining us to explore whether this purveyor of heartless and vile lies will have to pay judgments he is trying to avoid by bogus bankruptcy filings is Anna Merlin, a journalist specialising in politics, crime, religion, subculture and women's lives. A senior staff writer at Vice Features, she was previously an investigative reporter for Gizmodo Media Group, a senior reporter at Jezebel and a staff writer at The Village Voice and The Dallas Observer. She's the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. And we will discuss her latest article advice, Sandy Hook Families May Not Buy InfoWars Sudden Bankruptcy Filing. Then, now that average taxpayers have filed their taxes, we'll look into how the U.S. tax system is making inequality worse and speak with Paul Keel, a reporter covering business and consumer finance for ProPublica, with a focus on the IRS and its ability to administer the nation's tax laws. He's the author of The Great American Foreclosure Story, The Struggle for Justice and a Place to Call Home, and we will discuss his latest investigation of ProPublica, The Secret IRS Files, America's Highest Earners and Their Taxes Revealed, and how incomes and tax rates of the 400 highest-earning Americans from leaked IRS files reveal a system where the highest earners, on average, pay a far lower tax rate than the merely affluent do. And even among the top 400, some groups have it better than others, with tech billionaires paying rates well below other business owners. Then finally we'll get an update from Ukraine from Emily Channel Justice, the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University a socio-cultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. She joins us to discuss mounting pressure on Putin from Russian nationalists and a public indoctrinated by bloodthirsty propaganda to destroy Ukraine and not negotiate with an enemy they are told are Nazis. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. Then joining us now is Anna Merlin, a journalist specializing in politics, crime, religion, subcultures, and women's lives, a senior staff writer at Vice Features. She was previously an investigative reporter at Gizmodo Media Group, a senior reporter at Jezebel, and a staff writer at The Village Voice and The Dallas Observer. And she's the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theories, and Their Surprising Rise to Power. And her latest article advice is Sandy Hook Families May Not Buy InfoWars Sudden Bankruptcy Filing. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anna Merlin. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Anna. And it looks like Alex Jones is uh, is obviously trying to dodge the liability for these court cases, both in Texas and in Connecticut. But on Sunday, I guess he filed for bankruptcy in is it Travis County. That's Austin, is it not? Well, so he filed for what's called Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, which is a little bit different because typically Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection would allow the business to stay operational, essentially. Um, And it would sort of allow the company to prepare a new plan to pay its creditors. all of which is relevant because the Sandy Hook families or some of the Sandy Hook families who are suing Jones in Texas um, have accused him in a filing earlier this month of moving Infowars and related companies' assets into these sort of shell companies 
seemingly they allege as part of a plan not to pay them. And we're talking about $18 million? Oh, uh, probably a lot more than that. So um, just as a quick background here, what's been going on is that Jones is being sued by Sandy Hook families in both uh, Texas and Connecticut um, for repeatedly referring to Sandy Hook as a, the Sandy Hook shootings as a giant hoax. Um, And at this point, he's lost both cases by default and we are moving towards a trial just to determine damages. Uh, During this process, the plaintiff's lawyers have alleged that InfoWars has been not super forthcoming about providing financial documents that would allow them to sort of determine the scope of damages. Uh, And so now we have them filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection while at the same time, some of the families in Texas are alleging that Jones and InfoWars have moved money to these other shell companies that recently came into existence. Um, So, you know, from their perspective, all of this looks like a ploy to sort of both create confusion about how much money InfoWars even has and also uh, make it harder for the plaintiffs to get at that money if they win a big judgment. And how does he make his money? Mm. So the main way that Alex Jones has always made his money is through products, uh, both supplements. He has a or had for a long time, a thriving supplements business. And then he sells other products, including bumper stickers and uh, sort of disaster preparedness stuff is the best way to put it. So things like water filtration systems, uh, systems for freeze drying food, all of these things that he's told his audience for years, you'll need, you know, in the coming, um, coming one world government derived apocalypse, basically. So his InfoWars platform is not just a means by which he propagates his conspiracy theories. It's also a revenue-raising operation. Yeah, I mean, it has been for a long time. He started selling uh, these disaster preparedness things in about 2007. That's when he launched what's called InfoWars Life, which was the store where he sold all these products. And it really... Um, opened up a huge revenue stream for him, as far as we know, and it created a real longevity to the business. He was one of the first sort of conspiracy peddlers to do something like this and to do it so successfully. So, yeah, it's been a huge driver in keeping InfoWars relevant and operational. Well, he claims to have, and I'm not sure about pinning this down, but there were claims that he donated $300,000 to the January 6th insurrection? Um, The idea, I believe, is that he donated $300,000 to, I believe, somebody who went on to help organize part of the rally, um, which is an heir to the public supermarket fortune. I would have to double check that. Um, Jones has insisted that he had nothing to do with the actual insurrection and that he only spoke at a uh, rally the night before. Um, and so that is sort of the other the other legal issue that he's currently facing is whether or not he bears any liability for what happened on January 6th, even though he's obviously denied any responsibility for what happened. And he did appear before the January 6th committee investigating gen- the uh, insurrection. And he did, I think yes. he played the fifth, what, 100 plus times? Yeah, the congressional committee, he did. Mm-hmm. So did he dodge a bullet there, do you think? Well, um, so far, it seems that he has pretty successfully sort of managed to evade any real discussion about how much liability he faces for sort of incitement. Um, You know, in kind of impromptu remarks in front of a crowd on January 6th, prior to the riots and the storming of the Capitol, he said... um, we declare 1776 against the New World Order. We need to understand that we're under attack. Uh, this is 21st century warf- warfare, and we need to get on a war footing. So even though he then went on to urge them to demonstrate peacefully, there has been a lot of discussion about whether or not this helped to sort of incite the crowd, which obviously he denies. 
And again, I'm speaking with Anna Merlin, who's a journalist specialising in politics, crime, religion, subcultures and women's lives, a senior staff writer at Vice Features. She was previously an investigative reporter for Gizmodo Media Group, a senior reporter at Jezebel and a staff writer at The Village Voice and The Dallas Observer. And she's the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. And the latest article advice is Sandy Hook Families May Not Buy InfoWars Sudden Bankruptcy Filing. So back to the source of his legal troubles, which is his the idea that he kept suggesting that the massacre of those school children, 26 people, including 20 first graders who were killed in uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012. And it was a... It was a incident that horrified the world and I recall at the time President Obama in tears talking about it. It was just so disgusting and the idea that he propagated these heartless and vile lies that the whole thing was a hoax is really at the source of this both in the cases against him in Connecticut and in Texas brought by the families who were not just wounded in the most cruel way by his propaganda but they were also harassed, were they not, by Jones's followers? They were. So um, Alex Jones for years referred to the Sandy Hook shootings as a giant hoax. He said uh, in 2014, he said, I've looked at it and undoubtedly there's a cover up. There's actors. They're manipulating. They've been caught lying, et cetera. Um, in a 2020 court filing, he said that he no longer believed that Sandy Hook was a hoax. However, uh, promoting these theories, uh was part of what led to an environment where the Sandy Hook families were indeed very, very viciously harassed for years. And it's important to note that it wasn't just Jones promoting these theories, but he was certainly one of the sort of biggest names and loudest voices. Um, So one of the um, fathers of a Sandy Hook victim, Lenny Posner, has talked about being doxxed, harassed, threatened by Sandy Hook conspiracy theorist for years to the point where he, at this point, essentially lives in hiding, has had to move many times and is still facing, um, you know, constant harassment from these folks. So, you know, these people suffered the worst loss you can possibly imagine. And then they went on to deal with, yeah, years of incredibly vicious harassment. So that is some of the context behind this defamation lawsuit and what they're claiming it, it cost them. But has has he ever admitted this on Infowars? In other words, he admitted that he was lying all along in the court filing, but that's not the same as telling his followers that uh, he was wrong. He has. You know, he doesn't he doesn't frame it in the sense of being wrong. Uh, what he talks about when he talks about the Sandy Hook stuff on air uh, is Jones says, you know, that he has disavowed the idea that Sandy Hook was fake, that, you know, his... New research has led him to other conclusions that he no longer thinks it was a cover-up and that the continued pursuit of these cases against him is really about a sort of globalist plot to shut down Infowars. That is the kind of discussion that he and his attorneys, to some extent, are having in public. They are saying that continuing to pursue him in the Sandy Hook cases is really about silencing free speech and trying to shut down Infowars as a platform. And that's something that they talk about all the time. So in terms of his illegal maneuvers, mm-hmm. what has he done? He's put the holdings or the assets of this company into a whole bunch of shell companies claiming that he's broke. So what's his excuse for why $18 million disappeared? I mean, what all he does is sit in, a, in front of a microphone, right, and spout this nonsense on a daily basis. So... so Right. How could he how could he claim that he's lost eighteen million dollars? So this filing from the families in Texas essentially alleges that starting in twenty eighteen, after he was sued for defamation in Texas, uh, Jones, Infowars, and Free Speech Systems, which is the parent company that owns Infowars, started moving money um into these shell companies. What Infowars said at the time, according to this filing, is that what they were actually doing was paying off a debt to a company called PQPR, who um, 
is the company responsible for, you know, making some of their products like the bumper stickers and the water filtration systems. And so that they 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 were saying that they owed PQPR like fifty four million dollars and that this moving money was actually just paying off this debt. Um, what the Sandy Hook plaintiffs lawyers are saying is that PQPR is a shell company that's wholly owned and operated by Jones and Infowars and that really they're just, you know, playing three card Monty and moving money around. So this filing from the Sandy Hook plaintiffs alleging that they were moving money in a misleading or fraudulent way was filed in early April. And so far, uh, Jones's attorneys have not responded to that. So during these Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection proceedings, that is going to come up. The idea of whether or not this money is perhaps somewhere else uh, is going to come up. The idea of whether or not uh, this money is still sort of within the reach of the plaintiffs is going to come up. You know, Chapter 11 bankruptcy is a very invasive uh, process. There's going to be forensic accounting. There's going to be sort of all kinds of questions about exactly where his assets are. So it's uh, going to be an interesting process to watch. Well, it sounds like it's also going to be a, a process in which he's going to be caught in this rather sh- shabby lie, right? Well, um, I think that's certainly what the plaintiffs in this case are expecting. And I'm sure Jones and his lawyers have a, a different version of what's going on. And I'm looking forward to finding out what that is. Well, as you say, though, the, the forensic accounting is fairly zealous in, in these cases. And yes. now with all this publicity and shining a light on it, I mean, is there any sense of how you reach his followers? Mm. Are they just simply drunk on the Kool-Aid that they can't be changed, that there's no way to discredit this guy and undo his core business, which is conspiracy? Well... You know, what we actually know is that Jones has probably lost a lot of audience share for a couple of reasons. One is that beginning in 2018 or 2019, a bunch of social media platforms uh, banned him, banned Infowars, banned a bunch of sort of related properties that they had. And so at this point, if you are a diehard Infowars follower, he's increasingly hard to find unless you go to you know, his main websites. But um, for a casual viewer, it's much harder to be exposed to InfoWars ideas or Jones as a person. Um, At the same time, there has been an upsurge in sort of Jones imitators and people who are promoting the same ideas, in some cases using the same business model. And those people have also been kind of eating into his kind of market share and his audience. In other words, there's a newer generation of conspiracy peddlers who are frankly doing a much better job reaching a new audience. So it's not so much that the folks who might have been really engaged in Infowars before are deciding that he was wrong or turning away so much as they might just be finding other people that they'd rather follow instead. And is there a crossover with QAnon and his audience? I mean, has QAnon stolen his thunder? Um, I would say that Jones in particular is not sort of a huge fan necessarily of QAnon related conspiracy theories, though some of his ideas kind of overlap. But certainly the sort of QAnon celebrities and the QAnon conspiracy peddlers uh, have definitely probably diverted some attention away from Jones, because especially during the Trump presidency, QAnon was such a attention grabbing kind of alluring conspiracy theory for so many people. So between that and sort of COVID denying and anti-vaccine personalities and conspiracy theories, you know, uh, there's just places where Jones is no longer competing, so to speak, at the level that he used to. And didn't his ex-wife reveal a lot of rather unsavory details about him? Yeah, his ex-wife, I believe her name is Kelly Jones, has been sort of involved in separate litigation against him that forced him to sit for a deposition uh, that was fairly embarrassing for him and kind of created a lot more kind of attention on his personal life than he might have preferred. Uh, And I don't, as far as I know, that is not ongoing, but it was just kind of another bout of withering press for him. The last few years have been just very hard on his image in a lot of ways. 
Well, just in the last minute or so, I believe, though, that in I think in the Connecticut cases, he's been pretty defiant, hasn't he, with court-ordered depositions. He said he was sick and could show up for a deposition, and turned out he was doing a four-hour radio broadcast. Yeah, this, uh, this came up, which um, Jones had not agreed to sit for a deposition in the Connecticut case. Um, the judge started assigning him a series of escalating fines until he complied. Uh, and so finally he did. After paying about $75,000 in fines, he did sit for two days of depositions. Um, and now, actually, it was just reported that he's he's going to get his money back because he sat for those fines. So, you know, he at least has that $75,000 back. Mm. Well, that mm. doesn't sound like, sounds more like a slap on the wrist than a snapping of the handcuffs, right? It was certainly a perception that a lot of people had as, uh, you know, that he had been getting away with not complying with court orders for a very long time. Um, actually, in that case, the Sandy Hook plaintiffs in Connecticut had been asking for him to be jailed until he sat for a deposition, which obviously did not happen. So just in closing, then, you've talked to the lawyers for... Mm-hmm. The families in the Texas case, and they seem pretty confident that they that they're going to nail this guy. So the statement that I got today from Mark Bankston, who is uh, an attorney for some of the Texas plaintiffs, said he said um, none of Mr. Jones' ridiculous tricks have worked in the past. This one will fare no better. So yeah, I think that they're clearly skeptical of the Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection filing and are pretty confident that they will be able to um, make a case in court that it is not what it seems. And hopefully someday some of these parents will not have to hide after suffering the horror of losing their children and then to be harassed by acolytes of this sick person. You know, justice has been delayed in this, in that aspect for some time. Yeah, I mean, what these parents have been through is is pretty unthinkable. And if anything, I think one thing we can say about these cases against Alex Jones is that it, it probably specifically has made Sandy Hook conspiracy theorism less appealing to folks who are trying to get attention or grow a conspiracy-minded audience. I think it is pretty clear at this point that if you engage in that specific type of conspiracy peddling, uh, it, it will cost you. Well, Anna Mellon, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Anna Merlin, who's a journalist specializing in politics, crime, religion, subcultures, and women's lives, a senior staff writer at Vice Features. She was previously an investigative reporter for Gizmodo Media Group, a senior reporter at Jezebel, and a staff writer at The Village Voice and The Dallas Observer. And she's the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. And her latest article advice is Sandy Hook Families May Not Buy InfoWars Sudden Bankruptcy Filing. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at how the U.S. tax system is making inequality worse. Last week I had the strangest dream Where everything was exactly how it seemed Where there was never any mystery Of who shot John F. Kennedy It was just a man Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Paul Keel, a, a reporter covering business and consumer finance for ProPublica, with a focus on the IRS and its ability to administer the nation's tax laws. He's the author of The Great American Foreclosure Story, The Struggle for Justice and a Place to Call Home, and his work has helped spur a $135 million settlement by a subprime lender for alleged abuses against service members, legislation in Congress, a federal investigation of the high-cost lender state rules changes, and the forgiveness of $17 million in medical bills. And his latest investigation at ProPublica is The Secret IRS Files, America's Highest Earners and Their Taxes Revealed. Welcome to Background Reefing, Paul Keel. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, on Friday, people paid their taxes and they've done their duty, at least middle class and working Americans. But it's not entirely clear that the most fortunate among us are paying their fair share. And your article basically suggests that the U.S. tax system 
itself is making inequality worse. Yeah, that's right. So what we did uh, last week was we released uh, information on who earns the most. This is how much income they put on their tax returns, the top 400 earners by that standard, uh, to get into this group that's you'd have to have uh, an average of $110 million per year of income. Uh, and well, there's a couple of interesting things to take from it. Uh, one is at the top, uh, we have 11 Americans who are earning over a billion dollars every year on average during the time period. We looked at 2013 through 2018. Um, and it's dominated by tech billionaires. So at the very top was Bill Gates. And this is mostly from selling off uh, Microsoft stock and, and dividends and that sort of thing. Um, but there's also quite a, a number of hedge fund managers. So these are you know, traders um, making money from, from trades and, and their profits from their companies are flowing to them. And some of them are making more than a billion dollars a year. Uh, and the concentration of wealth is kind of evident here. Um, but there's, there's kind of a broader point to put this in context, which is that it's not always the case that if you're among the wealthiest people in the world, like Bill Gates, you necessarily have the highest income. So one example we give is Warren Buffett, who did not even make the list of the 400. And that's because Buffett famously has uh, held on to his wealth as it's grown um, from his company, Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, the company does not pay dividends. So when you look at his tax returns, he looks like a merely very, very affluent person. He does not look like one of the top 10 wealthiest people in the world. Um, and so that's, that's a key feature of our, our tax system to, to keep in mind. Well, I guess the super wealthy, though, don't they basically, like Elon Musk, for example, with he's the richest guy in the world, apparently, he just borrows against his stock holdings, doesn't he? And isn't this technique known as buy, borrow and die, in which the super wealthy buy and build assets, borrow against them, and then avoid state estate and gift taxes when they die? Yeah, that's right. So that's, that's a this major factor of our tax system is it's not set up to tax wealth, per se. Um, and if you are phenomenally wealthy, you have a lot of control um, particularly if you're someone who has, if your wealth is in stocks, like for Musk or Jeff Bezos, um, in terms of when you decide to to sell your stock and turn it into the sort of income that ends up on a tax return. So when, so, so for somebody like Musk, you know, he, he's not at the top of this list because he simply has decided, you know, not, not to sell um, his his wealth. And then when you do, though, we have a system that taxes that sort of income at a lower rate. So if you sell your stock, that's generally taxed around 20% versus the top marginal rate on normal income or ordinary income, which is currently 37%. So it's you know roughly half, a little less than a uh, little more than half. Um, so those two combinations, two factors is, is one, if you have the sort of wealth, you've control when you realize uh, your wealth and turn it into income. And then when you do that, your tax at a lower rate, and that you know can help you understand how this system would, would you know basically exacerbate uh, wealth inequality. So tell us what happened then in during George W. Bush's uh, administration, where they made it easier for the super wealthy to use that loophole. Right. So the big argument behind these tax cuts, these massive tax cuts in 2003, was that we need to basically cut taxes for you know, the people who are the engine behind our great economy, people who are investing in our economy. Um, so they slashed rates on capital gains. So if you sold stock, you weren't going to pay 20% anymore. You're going to pay 15%. And then a major change was that they changed how stock dividends are, are taxed. So these used to be taxed at the same rate as other ordinary income, whether it be interest or wages or something like that. Instead, it was taxed at the same rate as, as stock sales, as capital gains. And Obama eventually rolled back a lot of the Bush tax cuts, so the capital gains rate went back up to 20%, but a feature that stuck was this special treatment for dividends. And if you look at who has that sort of income, it tends to be very wealthy people. Um, you know, Ordinary people don't tend to have a lot of dividends. If they have stocks, often they're already in tax-protected accounts like 401ks or you know IRAs and that sort of thing. So who's affected by this is, is, is the wealthy. And one thing we looked at is this simple policy difference, treating dividends this way, who benefits from that? We're actually able to look at individual people who have massive tax savings for this. So at the top of the list was Bill Gates, 
who saved uh, on average $125 million in taxes every year from just simply having this lower rate on dividends. And the other group that struck us was in the top 400, was, there's 11 heirs of the Walmart fortune who have such streams of income coming from their inheritance that they're in the top 400 Americans by income on average every year. And a lot of that money is coming to them in the form of dividends. And so this group of 11 heirs was saving $370 million in taxes every single year from this this policy change. And again, I'm speaking with Paul Keel, who's a reporter covering business and consumer finance for ProPublica, with a focus on the IRS and its ability to administer the nation's tax laws. He's the author of The Great American Foreclosure Story, The Struggle for Justice and a Place to Call Home, and his work has helped spur a $135 million settlement by a subprime lender for alleged abuses against service members, legislation in Congress, a federal investigation of a higher-cost lender, state rule changes, and the forgiveness of $17 million in medical bills. And his latest investigation of ProPublica is The Secret IRS Files, America's Highest Earners and Their Taxes Revealed. So since this enormous trench of, uh, of IRS files on the wealthiest Americans, and they were leaked to ProPublica, weren't they, a month or so ago? Uh, no, we, we did our first story in this uh, back in June of last year. So oh, we've been, sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot to go through, and we've, we've tried to, you know, D- different stories have taken different angles. It's, it's you know, taxes can be kind of complicated. We work really hard to make, you know, it digestible. So this this uh, this latest version was looking at, you know, income on your on your taxes. Our first story focused on this wealth aspect of it and just on that because we thought that was kind of almost the biggest point to make from this data. Sure, but it has spurred Ron Wyden and the Senate Finance Committee, has it not, to kind of draft legislation because it's, it's all pretty glaring, isn't it? What's been revealed in these IRS files? Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this issue of, the, you know, this basic issue about our system of, of the ability to sidestep the system if you have all this wealth. Um, yeah, so Wyden had a proposal that, so it's called like a mark-to-market proposal. Basically, the idea is if you get wealthier on paper, it's going to be treated like income. Uh and then Biden actually had a proposal a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he called the billionaire minimum income tax as part of the budget that his administration put out. And and it was very similar to Wyden's proposal, but basically like we're going to treat this like income. So if you get if you get richer, $220 billion richer on paper, that's going to be income and it's going to be taxed at 20 percent. At, at so these are particularly coming from Biden. That's a big deal. You know, no president never put forward something as kind of a it's a, it's a very fundamental reform to make of our tax system, because this this aspect of not being able to tax wealth is arguably the biggest deal, um, particularly for people at the top of the income or, or the wealthiest Americans. Um, it doesn't really stand much of a chance, apparently, in the Senate, just because Joe Manchin said that he doesn't like the idea. Uh, but, it's, you know, it's reasonable to consider that this this sort of reform is definitely going to be on the table going forward, and maybe, you know, someday it'll become law. Well, Mitch McConnell just the other day was saying that Biden's uh, attempt at sort of a, a rework of a reboot of uh, Build Back Better, where he wants to uh, repeal the Trump tax cuts on the super wealthy, he said that he's confident that Senator Cinema will uh, stymie that. So that's pretty extraordinary to have both Manchin and Cinema, you know, working against Biden and the Democrats. Yeah, I mean, the, from the coverage I've seen, she doesn't like the idea of, you know, raising the corporate rate. You know, the corporate rate was cut from 35 percent to 21 percent. It was a very stark rate, even such a deep cut that I've, you know, I've seen remarks from former Trump officials who said, like, you know, it's really too much. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But yeah, but she's, she apparently opposes that. And, and these these are sort of the conventional, you know, reforms that, you know, the rate gets lowered, the rate gets raised. I think the point to make is is Biden's proposal on on the billionaire taxes would be something that would more fundamentally get at this issue of you know uh, being able to sidestep the system and, and control what is income in the first place. But cinema is troublesome in the sense that she doesn't talk to the press and she doesn't explain why she's doing what she's doing. So. I I, yeah, no, I, I I have to go on on you know reporting in the Times and Post and other newspapers, uh, and it, it from what I've read, she doesn't like the idea of raising rates. So it, it makes that makes you know uh, 
But she doesn't explain money. why that, does she, Paul? She doesn't I, I explain not, anything. I've not seen an explanation of that. I would uh, say that there are ways of, of raising revenue by not necessarily raising rates. So, you know, famously closing loopholes. Uh, sure. You know, one of the stories that we did with our, our information was about uh, Peter Thiel, who is, you know, he's a he's he was one of the PayPal billionaires, along with, uh, you know, Elon Musk and some others. Uh, and he's on the, the board of Facebook. He's a big, you know, big uh, Silicon Valley guy. Um who finances a lot of uh, conservative, uh, you know, operations. Uh, he has a Roth IRA. So Roth IRAs are, are retirement accounts that are supposed to be for middle-income people. They're they're very tax protected. If you sell stock in a Roth IRA, there's no capital gains. Um, so it's it's a special thing. It's supposed to be. It's meant for you know you can only contribute if you have under a certain um, income. But he found a way to put his PayPal stock into a Roth IRA and built what we found was eventually a $5 billion Roth IRA account, which is, if it continues as it is, they'll never pay taxes on any of that growth. Um, it's a massive benefit for him. Uh, and so there was legislation on the Hill to address that. And that's the sort of thing that would raise revenue without raising rates necessarily. And it was actually in the, the Build Back Better bill before it got spiked. So there are things you can do that would make a difference, but obviously uh, those are not quite as big as, you know, raising rates or doing something like the, the minimum income tax uh, for billionaires. But in terms of the rich living lavishly by employing this technique that we mentioned earlier, buy, borrow, die, in which you buy and build assets, borrow against them, and then avoid estate and gift taxes when you die. I mean, Donald Trump used to always brag about, you know, living off debt. So can't you close that loophole where, you know, Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos, they just borrow against their stock? And in fact, I imagine Musk's attempt to buy Twitter for $54 billion, he's probably just borrowing $54 billion against his stock, is he not? Yeah, he's, he's, it's been stated that he has a credit line against his stock. Uh, I, I don't know how much he would be able to raise from that because, you know, that's a lot of money to raise sure. to, to, buy, to buy Twitter. But, um, I mean, the way to get at that is, is if you treat paper gains as a form of income, which is basically Biden's proposal, then it doesn't matter what you do with it. It's, it's now treated as income and you have to, you have to, you have to pay taxes on it eventually. That's, that's kind of the approach um, as opposed to, you know, legislating something around these loans, which by the way, these loans are not just for billionaires. There's, there's all sorts of products on Wall Street for people to borrow against their portfolio. So you don't have to be a billionaire to do this. You can be, you know, a simple millionaire um, and use this to sort of, you know, control your income and retirement and that sort of stuff. It's pretty conventional at this point. But at the end of the day, the IRS rules that you're arguing, and convincingly so, that they're contributing to inequality they're controlled and made by the Congress. And surely at the end of the day, the real problem is the people in the Congress seem to be more beholden to the plutocracy than they are to, well, let me put it another way, to Wall Street as opposed to Main Street. Yeah, these are these are fixable problems. You know, the estate tax is pretty much broken in the sense that it catches very few people. There's so many ways around it, with trusts particularly, there's legislation on the Hill that apparently would do a lot to close that loophole and make people actually pay estate taxes again. Um, these are all fixable problems. It's just a matter of Congress uh, having the will to, to address them through legislation. So what kind of Congress do we need to elect just in the last minute? Well, you, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, the current one is, is not doing it, right? Because um, particularly in the Senate, uh, yeah, that that's that's not particularly mysterious i think you would you would right. need more people opening yeah uh, open to raising taxes and that tends to be people of one party well paul kale i thank you very much for joining us here today all right thanks a lot and again i've been speaking with paul kale who's a reporter covering business and consumer finance for propublica with a focus on the irs and its ability to administer the nation's tax laws He's the author of The Great American Foreclosure Story, The Struggle for Justice and a Place to Call Home. And his work has helped spur a $135 million settlement by a subprime lender for alleged abuses against service members, legislation in Congress, 
a federal investigation of a high-cost lender, state rule changes, and the forgiveness of $17 million in medical bills, and his latest investigation of ProPublica is The Secret IRS Files, America's Highest Earners and Their Taxes Revealed. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing mounting pressure on Putin from Russian nationalists and a public indoctrinated by bloodthirsty propaganda to destroy Ukraine and not negotiate with an enemy they are told are Nazis. Cause I'm the tax man Yes, I'm the tax man That man is rough Now dig this Should 5% appear Too small Just be thankful I don't take it all. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Emily Channel Justice, who's the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013 to 2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. Welcome to Background Briefing, Emily Channel Justice. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And Ukraine today, I don't know the extent to which I believe there's 4 million Ukrainians in the neighboring countries to the West, Poland and Hungary, Slovakia, etc. But is it becoming a country where women are depopulated and there's only men of fighting age left? Well, not entirely. Um, what we have seen, your, your, your numbers about refugees, people who have crossed the border, absolutely true. What we've seen is really a large number of people in addition to that, something like 7 million people is the estimate who have moved within Ukraine. So they've gone from one place under under shelling or under siege in Ukraine, and they've headed somewhere else within Ukraine for safety. Um, we don't really know the demographics of that because men do have the right to travel around the country within the borders. Um, so, so that's probably where some of the movement is. We do know that the number of refugees, so people who have left Ukraine, the, the vast majority are women and children and especially single women or women with children, partly because, you know, men are trying to get their kids to safety. Um, so I wouldn't totally characterize it as, as a country full of men at this point. There's still a lot of people in Ukraine. Four million people is only uh, a small percentage of the 40 million people that made up the population of Ukraine before this war began. It's just that I think the demographics of the refugees are skewed because it is largely women and children who have been able to leave. Well, Mariupol, of course, is on the Sea of Azov, is poised to fall. And do we know how many of the civilian population and what percentage of the civilian population got out? Because it's all but destroyed. I mean, it's a yeah. it's a hellscape from pictures I've seen. That's what's happening. So the population of Mariupol before the war began was somewhere around half a million people. Um, the last numbers I have seen are that somewhere between 100 and 150,000 people remain. Um, you know, I know a few women and women with kids or women with their older parents who have been able to leave. Um, both of the people that I know in particular are refugees in Europe now. Um, they had to leave their fathers, their husbands behind. So in Mariupol, I think you might be more likely to see that the population that's left behind is largely male. Although it's also really important to recognize that a lot of elderly people stay behind as well. Their mobility is limited. Um, they might have extra needs that can't be accommodated in humanitarian corridors. And some of them probably just don't want to leave their homes. They would rather they would rather live out their lives, you know, where they're familiar with, um, instead of going through the stress of trying to travel to safety. Um, and, and that's something, you know, the numbers from Mariupol, I don't think we'll really have a lot of specific numbers, maybe for some time, because as you said, it's completely under siege. The city itself is destroyed. I do believe that the Ukrainian soldiers there will hold up for as long as they can, but I don't anticipate, honestly, that there will be any of them left by the time the siege is lifted, unfortunately. And the people from Mariupol that you've uh, spoken with, Emily, 
Are they Russian-speaking predominantly? And I wonder how they feel about what's happened to their city and to their country. Well, they're devastated. I mean, they they lived in Mariupol and built lives there because they love their hometown. Uh, both the people that I know um, are speak both languages fluently. Um, one of them is someone who is working with a, a civic organization there who grew up, you know, speaking Ukrainian as many Ukrainians do, and probably most people in Mariupol did. But we did an interview in Ukrainian, and she, you know, spoke it as if she was a native speaker, which she is. Um, and I think for a lot of them, at least for the people who I know of and have heard of from there, I mean, this is just shocking to them, not because they were pro-Russian politically, um, but because they lived in peace and safety for so many years. They put so much time into rebuilding that city after the war started in 2014. Um, and the attacks that have happened and come against them, they they just can't believe that they would be targeted like this and that their city would be targeted like this. So um, whatever Vladimir Putin's narratives about what Mariupol was like, you know, he can say whatever he wants, but I can tell you that people in Mariupol hate him and hate Russia at this point now because of what they have done. And we hear these reports from Russian soldiers and captives and from Ukrainians who interacted with them when they occupied their territory that the Russians running around the country, kicking doors down and asking, where are the Nazis? Where are the Nazis? And where are the Banderites? They even go back to the World War Two uh, collaborators with the Nazis. I mean, is this narrative really holding amongst the Russians? Do we know whether, whether they still believe they're in, looking for Nazis? They probably believe that they... Maybe they believe that they haven't found them yet. Um, maybe, unfortunately, they might believe that Ukrainians are trying to hide, you know, Nazis from these Russian soldiers. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, the majority of Ukrainians are not Nazis at all. Um, and and so I'm not really sure. I think the, you know, the, the experience of the soldiers in Ukraine, the Russian soldiers in Ukraine, right now is going to be totally different than, you know, people who are still in Russia, who are still hearing all that Kremlin propaganda that's constantly driving home that narrative. So those people in Russia who already were likely to believe Kremlin propaganda, you know, they're probably not changing their minds. And, and anything Ukrainians tell them is not going to change their minds. I mean, that's those are the, just the, some very sad stories that I've, I've heard of people trying to convince their relatives in Russia that there's a war happening and that they're being indiscriminately attacked and, and people in Russia just simply won't believe them. Um, and then I think, un unfortunately, a lot of the Russians who would question those propaganda narratives about Ukraine being filled with Nazis, I mean, many of those who were able to have already left. Um, so as far as effectively questioning those narratives, you know, what we've seen is, is that Russian soldiers and many people in Russia are just inclined to believe these narratives anyway, no matter how false. It doesn't matter if they have proof of the, the falsehood of these narratives. They continue to believe them anyway. And again, I'm speaking with Emily Channel Justice, the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements around students and feminists during the 2013 and 2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. So, Emily, it's my understanding that when word of what was being negotiated in Turkey between the Ukrainian delegation and the Russian delegation got out to the kind of Russian right-wingers and Kadyrov, the, the Chechen leader who's one of the worst of them, a war criminal. The idea that they were discussing concessions apparently f flipped these ultra-nationalists out, and now they're putting pressure on Putin, and through the state media, they just have this bloodlust. In other words, if Putin wants to compromise, he's not going to be able to compromise because his propaganda machine has unleashed such poison that there's this massive bloodlust amongst the Russian people and particularly amongst these right-wing extremists that they want total victory. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah, I I think it's, uh, it's really interesting that we're in a situation to hear of Russia even using the word concessions in talking of themselves, right? I mean, this whole narrative has been 
about Ukraine giving something up. But the fact of the matter is uh, the Russian victory is not going to plan, at least the original plan. Um, but I, I think I think what, what you've mentioned here about Kadyrov and, and others, it's really a problem for Putin now, because even as Putin still controls, you know, every every all power in Russia is centralized with Putin, but he's created these mouthpieces, you know, who he's promised a certain amount of power to with people like Kadyrov. And, and, you know, if he doesn't get it, if Kadyrov doesn't get what he was told he would get, obviously that's going to be a problem for Putin. Um, my optimistic assessment is that perhaps Putin's stronghold on power is, is breaking down a little bit because, you know, he can't actually win in the way that he promised that he could. I'm not sure if that's really, you know, I'm probably far too optimistic here, um, but it could be an indication that there are some cracks Russia cannot enter into negotiations saying everybody else has to do exactly what we say. They may actually have to give up some ground here. Um, and that's a that's an interesting position to be in. At the same time, I think it does cause um, Russian aggression right now in terms of, you know, missile attacks and that sort of thing to be more aggressive at exactly this moment. I mean, as soon as we we heard the confirmation that Ukrainians had sunk the Moskva um in the in the in this in the Black Sea, you know, we started to see renewing of shelling. We saw shelling in Kiev all across Kharkiv. We saw shells today in in Viv, all the way in Western Ukraine. So, on the one hand, you know, we can be a little bit optimistic, maybe that Russia has to negotiate differently than they have been so far. On the other hand, it's certainly going to make their their kind of military response um, scale up. I, I would think. So, we're in a situation now as this as this big offensive begins in the east for the Donbass, that Zelensky said we basically have to win. And on the other hand, Putin can't afford to lose, it would seem. So I don't see him backing down. If Zelensky's right, and if for some reason, and it's going to obviously be very costly for the Ukrainians, if they can actually... It's not a question of holding the Russians in the territory that they control so that they can't take over all of the Donetsk and Luhansk. But it's basically, if they defeat them, what then? I mean, I, I can't see Putin accepting a defeat, or is it just, would he be faced with the reality that his military have failed him? I mean, apparently they're, they're still pouring in conscripts. It's not, it's not as if they're putting in their top-of-the-line soldiers in this new offensive or maybe they don't they run out of them I, I i don't know what the military situation really is well and and that's exactly a problem is that we don't you know we don't really have a great sense of russia's actual military losses we have the information that we have comes from the ukrainian government and while we would maybe like to believe their numbers of twenty thousand russian troops that have been killed that we, you know, we know that they might that might also be somewhat of an exaggeration, um, and and of course the Russian side is not going to make any really true admissions about their losses. So we, that's part of why we're still in the dark about what's going to happen next um, in terms of the military offensive. I mean, I I don't see Russia backing down. I don't see Putin backing down until there's some way to claim a victory. Um, and that victory does have to fit in the narrative that he has already created for himself, which, as we might recall, you know, is <laughs> his original narrative was that Ukraine would fall to Russia and become, you know, back part of the Russian world within a few days. And, and certainly that isn't what happened. So I, you know, I'm not somebody who's optimistic enough to say that, OK, Russia's plan failed. They're going to lose. You know, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. However, I, I also believe in, in Ukraine's essential victory. I mean, they, they Zelensky is right. Ukraine has to win. Now, Zelensky has also said before that any types of concessions that he's willing to make will go to a referendum to the people of Ukraine. And I think that's very important because as I, I have you know continually taken the position to advocate that Ukraine will win, Ukraine cannot give up any territory. I don't think that's acceptable to ask them to do. However, if there's a situation in which there's a referendum and a majority of Ukrainians decide that they will accept some some concession of territory, then I do think it's acceptable in that point. Um, as long as, but the, you know, the problem is any concession that Ukraine makes right now, um, giving up any territory to Russia, you know, we don't have any reason to believe that Russia would not once again 
renew an invasion at some point in the future. So I think we have to be really skeptical of Russia's absolutely longer term goals. So even if Putin doesn't have the decisive victory he wants now, if he can get Ukraine to give up certain territorial concessions, he could rebuild his military in the Donbass over the next few years and then try again. We really can't, you know, we really can't underestimate the amount of time that Vladimir Putin will be committed to this goal. So just in the last couple of minutes, let's just follow through on that, because that's been my understanding that Putin would never accept a uh, peace treaty. He will he would accept an armistice because uh, he wants to continue to destabilize Ukraine, which is what he's been doing since 2014. And of course, in terms of NATO membership, well, there's an awful lot of NATO arms coming into Ukraine, and if whatever agreement was, assuming it would be an armistice, Ukraine's not going to give up its military, obviously. It's going to be more and more armed by NATO. So I don't see, <laughs> I don't see there what Putin has gained here. I know his real motive was he didn't want the Ukrainians to become part of the EU and become a democratic, thriving country with the rule of law, in contrast to his kleptocracy. But nevertheless, the excuse has always been NATO expansion. Well, won't Ukraine become a de facto NATO country? I think it's 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 the NATO. The question of NATO is the first place where Zelensky did indicate a potential willingness to step back and, and say, OK, Ukraine will agree to be neutral instead of pursuing membership. Um and and I think that that is because you know Ukraine had Ukraine was neutral in 2014 um, when it was invaded in the first place. It was neutral in 2022 when it was invaded again. Um, and clearly, NATO is letting Ukraine down right now. I think you know Zelensky is interested in building some alternative kind of security structure that will protect Ukraine. I think what's more interesting is the response of Finland and Sweden. Their interest in joining NATO, whereas. Before this invasion, you know, NATO's non-response to Ukraine benefited Russia, right? Because it meant that Ukraine was not being armed as aggressively as they were asking for. It meant that there wasn't going to be this protection of Ukraine by NATO. However, if Finland and Sweden join NATO, then the NATO organization itself has a rejuvenated um, you know, reason to exist. Uh, it it will possibly take this Russian threat a little bit more seriously. Um, and, and so I think what Putin has done here is, okay, maybe NATO membership is off the table for Ukraine right now, but it's, it's a more important organization than ever. Uh, if he had never invaded, you know, NATO could have just sort of ineffectively fell out of existence or relevance. Um, but instead, you know, now we're all talking about the future of NATO. And, and so whatever, you know, even if even if NATO is, is continually hesitant to actually make Ukraine an official member, like you've said, there's all kinds of new weapons and new equipment and new materials going into Ukraine, in addition to a new interest in NATO itself around Europe, which is a, a direct, absolutely direct effect of this invasion. Well, Emily, Channel Justice, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks again for having me. And again, I'm speaking with Emily Channel Justice, who's the director of the Tomoda Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. She's a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012, and her current research focuses on the political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013 and 2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land Way.